0: So, um, all right. Well, hey, welcome to the show. We're here with Kaylin Savage. Kaylin is a writer for Medium. I'm assuming you write for a lot of different publications, right? Or do you strictly with Medium? Medium and Substack, and I occasionally do freelance copywriting
1: upon request for businesses, that sort of thing.
0: Kaylin recently wrote an article. Actually, it was in December of 22. You wrote an article titled "Why the Airbnb Bust is is Wishful Thinking," and. And I really like that article, but by the way, I've looked through a lot of your 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 pieces, and I like a lot of them. you You tend to write on stuff that i'm I'm very interested in. and so actually, we'll have a link to your medium article on the airbnb bust, which is going to be the topic of this show um down below we'll we'll link to that because it was it was really well done. um I really appreciate that, but before we get to that, so your name had me confused because it's c a i l i a n and I was like, how do you pronounce yeah, this? Kaelian, uh, Kaelian, and
1: it's just Kaelin. Yeah, so the, the story behind that is Irish names tend to be a little interesting. Uh, different, different spelling patterns <laughs> to, to your typical American or British name. Uh, my dad's Irish, my mom isn't. My dad picked the name and my mom was left to spell it on the birth certificate. And she had no idea what the Irish spelling would look like. So she just invented her own and figured this looks weird enough that people might think it's Irish.
0: (laughs) So she, your name is the result of one, someone thinks an Irish name might look like. I like that.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. (laughs) The the actual Irish spelling should have an O in it.
0: Oh, okay. You know, Irish do have the greatest names, by the way. So here's my little ranking. I think the Scottish have the greatest accents. But I think the Irish have the coolest names.
1: Um, this will this will start a very fierce debate between these two. <laughs> Close, but
0: <laughs> I've never been to Ireland, but I do want to go. Just a beautiful place, and the fact that you guys, you know, held the Romans off, I I, I appreciate that, and you know, you got some pluck there.
1: There's a, a there's a really fascinating um, ancient historical figure. Actually, I studied ancient history at university, so okay. that was my that was my first background. And there was an ancient geographer by the name of Strabo who, who was asked. So he was writing about why the the Romans didn't invade Ireland, and his description of it was basically this: um, the land is poor, they have nothing, and the men kill their enemies and have sex with their mothers. <laughs> so. How right was he? (laughs) (laughs) he? Um, (laughs) We don't know because the Romans are the only ones writing uh, a lot of information about Ireland at that time. So we kind of have to take your word for it. Yeah, Um, I like that. One would guess that maybe Ireland wasn't as sophisticated as... uh, Babylon
0: and Rome at that time. Yeah, I, everything that I've read kind of leads to that, I think. But it was good. I mean, maybe you're unsophisticated around the edges, but maybe the inside <laughs> was this really, you know, sophisticated joint. But, um, but I yeah, love it. And nice. I, you know, I also read that the Romans were concerned that the cows would explode because they ate too much <laughs> grass. Um, and I don't know if there's any truth to that. So I, I've always thought that was pretty interesting. It's new
1: for me, but I can see it. Very, I can see it being a very plausible issue to have in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I do have to say, like um, you know, talking with Americans about um, you know organic food and that sort of thing, occasionally the phrase "grass-fed beef" pops up, and mm-hmm. um, this is a very, very confusing concept to explain to some of the Irish.
0: Yeah, right. So, like, what else is there? <laughs> um, so Airbnb bust. So um, your mm-hmm. article. Uh, why, why Airbnb, why the Airbnb bust is wishful thinking in Medium was, was really thought provoking for me. Um, By the way, I do have a couple of Airbnbs, one up and running very successful, the other one in the pipeline, and I'm sure that'll be, you know, successful too. Um, I feel I have to disclose that, um, you know, while we're talking about this, but The reason that we purchased our Airbnbs are very different, right? So we didn't go into debt to buy them. We're not, you know, we weren't listening to a YouTube get rich quick guru telling us to jump in now before the bubble, you know, uh, before it cools off. We looked at it as homes that we actually use, right, for our own benefit. They're in places that we go to so we can stay there. And um, there will be, you know, assets that we'll hold on to for a while and then, you know, do what you need to do later on. It, but if at the same time we can use them to generate income, right, understanding that passive income is kind of a dream because uh, you do have to pay to manage them and upkeep, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I saw the – when I heard people talking about Airbnb bus, the first thing that I thought about was, yeah, bookings have gone down I don't know if it's a bust, but I kept seeing it everywhere on YouTube. Right, everywhere I looked, Airbnb bust, Airbnb bust, mm-hmm. and it's usually from these these you know get rich gurus, right, who are trying to push stuff, or people who are in the industry, right. Um, and so that's why your article to me was such a kind of a you know refreshing. Well, I'm going to be redundant here. I won't say that, <laughs> but a breath of, a breath of fresh air. Because you really took a very yeah. clean way of looking at it. So, how did you come? How did you come into this, Kaylin? Um Well,
1: I've been living abroad outside of Ireland uh, for about the past seven years now, uh, and I am what you might call a full-time digital nomad. I spend a lot of time in different countries and they use a lot of different accommodation services. So, I've been using Airbnb for quite a long time. I've seen it change over the years, and you know, we people who travel very regularly keep up to date with what airbnb is doing uh it's become its own entire genre of bookings just as you might have hotels hostels uh, apart hotels airbnbs have really become their own thing and it's changed enormously as a service airbnbs are not the same thing now that they were let's say 10 or even five years ago but i think there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of doomsday predictions about airbnb that i just don't strike me as true they just don't strike me as true and I think one of the one of the points you made there is quite an interesting one. You mentioned that you have a couple of Airbnbs, but they, they, they weren't bought uh, under heavy leverage. Right. And I think this is an important point. You know, uh, something is very different from an Airbnb compared to, say, a timeshare. You know, uh, we all remember the, you know, the, the timeshare bubble, you know, mm-hmm. in past days. And something like a timeshare is just fundamentally a bad idea for a lot of reasons, you know, and um, it's, it's not a typical property. There are a lot of disadvantages to having one. The concept of ownership is very different. An Airbnb is a house. You have a house, you know, if Airbnb falls apart tomorrow, you can do other things with that house. You can rent it out to a long-term tenant. You can sell it. You can, you can do a lot of things with that because you have a valuable asset and from the Airbnb point of view, they don't own that house. They don't own anything. You know, they're they're not a they're not a company that owns physical assets. That they'll own an office somewhere. I'm sure, probably in California, yeah. uh, they will have employees to pay. Their overheads are going to be re- really, really minimal um, compared to a lot of more conventional uh, tourist accommodation providers like hotels.
0: So. So before we get into Airbnb itself and how they operate, because I do want to talk about <laughs> that, about the company itself and its returns and its record returns, by the way, um, globally. Let's talk about the Airbnb experience because, um, by the way, I'm I, I, from everything that I've researched, hotels really don't feel like they're in competition with Airbnb. They just <laughs> don't. Um, no. it, it's not a disruptor. I know they try to portray themselves as a, as a disruptor, but they're not. Um, the hotel experience is very, very different. In fact, I don't like staying at Airbnbs. I'm not a digital nomad, right, such as yourself. But when I do travel for business, I want to go to a hotel because I want that experience, right? I want I want a clean room. Mm-hmm. I want a person at the desk to give me my stuff, and I want to know that if I'm there for a number of days, my room's going to get cleaned every day, and I don't want to have to clean it up before I leave, um, right? So I'm looking for that experience, and I think hotels provide that. Um when Airbnb first came out, I think, you know, people loved Airbnb, right? Let's go back a decade and a half, you know, when they were first busting out. We're like, oh, Airbnb, it's so cool. Um, but at that point, wasn't it a very different experience? It was pretty much people who were renting out rooms, right, in their homes mm-hmm. and then expanding. Mean, what, what is your idea on the beginning of Airbnb versus where it is today, the experience? When I think of yeah when i think about the the earlier days of airbnb um i
1: think of a company that was a bit like like a a hosting platform that was for profit do you know the way you have these services out there where let's say you want to go to budapest or miami and you go on something like meetup.com or you know and there will be people who will be hosting strangers in their house uh not looking for profit but because they want to show people around their city and I think in the early days, Airbnb was a bit like that with a little more profit in it. You know, most of the people were using it weren't expecting to make real money off it. Uh, most people who were doing it had a spare room in their house mm-hmm. and they thought, why not do something with that like um i actually think my dad uh is in property and is considering getting into airbnb and i know that whenever i moved out of the house he thought we have an empty room and the town we're in is known for having quite a good golf course is there maybe something we can do with this you know uh for the 10 days a year when there's a big competition or something going on could we do something with that room and that's probably closer to the idea of what Airbnb was ten years ago that you didn't really have full-time Airbnbs it wasn't a thing mm-hmm. and I think you see this with a lot of these other efficiency platforms like uber you know in the the earlier days uber also ran something along the idea of people with a bit of extra time in their hands and a car that they were paying insurance on uh, that they were you know, they were paying installments on, but weren't using, that they could use that to make a little bit of extra money from that. And that made perfect sense. You know, that was efficient. It was useful. Uh, and Airbnb was like that in the early days. And now, of course, it's changed because I think probably the, the market of Airbnb is really dominated by professional Airbnb owners. And that's an entirely different preposition. You know, when someone's not living in the house, it's a completely different experience. You know, they're not there to show you around the city. They're not there to give you tips. And they have a really different relationship with the guests. They're not there to supervise the property. And so they're going to be more concerned about people coming to it and what sort of state it might be left in. Mm -hmm. There are all sorts of new considerations to think about.
0: Yeah. I mean, if I were to put it in a very simple term, I would say the early days of, uh, the early days of Airbnb, to me, look like patchouli oil and sandals, and the current days are like Gucci lovers and briefcases, <laughs> right? It's two completely yeah, different people a, that, that they're marketing. Um, absolutely. Different worlds, completely different worlds. And so I, the Airbnb experience, to me, has changed in that um, I have stayed at them in the beginning, and, um, and to stay at them now, and here's my concerns with them, you know, the prices are really high right? I mean, even our place is probably much higher than the hotels around us, if if I'm being honest. You know, the fees are, I'm shocked at the fees. I really am. And I'm shocked at the fees for this reason, because not only are the cleaning fees high, but then I'm expected to clean up for myself. And I'm like, whoa, hold it a second. Then what is my cleaning fee for? If I had to do the laundry and wash all the dishes, like why am I like why are you charging me this huge cleaning fee, right? And then of course there are no services, which if I stay in a you know in a very nice hotel, you know, a, you know an upper end Marriott or something, you know, they they will have services there for me if I really need them. So what what how have these Items such as fees, the high fees that, you know, let's call them what they are, chores that you're expected to do when you stay there. I mean, how have these evolved since, you know, the patchouli oil and sandal days of Airbnb?
1: I think in the early days of Airbnb, uh, there was an expectation that these duties existed, you know, because very often. You were staying at a place for quite a reasonable price, and there wasn't an expectation of big profit. Very, occasion, very often, there would be someone in the same property, and so it would be a point of common decency to clean your room afterwards. And they weren't going to have a professional cleaner in. That, of course, has changed. Um, you know, nowadays, if you have a full time property, uh, you know you should be you should be hiring a professional cleaner. Uh, this is where things get confusing for me. Uh, I can understand. Why cleaning fees would be expensive for an Airbnb because an Airbnb is not a hotel. Uh, you have a very small property, and you can't hire someone for eight hours a day, five days a week, and pay them a salary. You have to pay them as a contractor hourly, that's going to be more expensive. So it kind of makes sense if you only have one or two Airbnbs, the cleaning fees are going to be higher. Um, but why are you doing all these duties then? And that to me is it's just a stealth tax. It's a way to raise the raise the face price of the booking without actually doing that you
0: know yeah are you familiar with Ticketmaster and Live Nation and what's happening there I'm sure you are yeah, you, you yeah know, absolutely, absolutely so to me it's kind of like the service fees that they have it's like you know it's well what the hell we can fee right um now I know that's exactly that I know the CEO Brian Chesky has come out and said hey you know let's let's be easy on these fees let's be transparent um, you know, on the cleaning fields, I think he's, I don't know if he's tried to step them back from the cleaning fees, because he's also said that, you know, people need to be able to, uh, you know, have a have a resource to take care of keeping the product available. So uh, what do you think about the CEO is doing and trying to combat some of this transparency on fees and prices?
1: So, This is probably something you will know more about than I do. Uh, What i would heard on the grapevine is that a lot of these changes were introduced in response to the possibility of the current U.S. administration introducing new rules on price transparency. Okay. that would also affect companies like AT&T and so on. So, you know, the idea is uh, the administration wanted new rules that would force companies to be more transparent about their prices and have fewer hidden fees. Airbnb realized that would affect them and they decided to get out ahead, get some good publicity and seem like they were seizing the initiative. I don't think Airbnb is doing it altruistically or out of care for their user base um, and I think actually there hasn't been that much change in the fees. I don't think it's made a substantial difference. And I uh, think that most of the problems that existed with Airbnb six months a year ago are still there now.
0: Yeah, you know, actually, now that you've said that, I do think you're you're one hundred percent right because they have. There has been some mumbling about this at the federal level, and um, there are actually in the past couple of weeks, bills have been introduced in California on fee transparency and, in kind of the bills don't say this, but I'm just going to use this as shorthand kind of truth in fees (laughs) so that people know exactly what fees are included. Make sure that when a, when a consumer, you know, presses that, you know, accept button that they know exactly what they are, uh, you know, responsible for as far as fees and prices and tax. So um, I think you're right. I, I, again, I don't think Brian Chesky is, is um, responding to people behind the whole Airbnb bust. I think he's just trying to get ahead of, you know, some more regulation. So, hey, look what we're doing. I see that a lot in this business. Now, I will say
1: there are parts of the business I think Airbnb is trying to change. um, And I think this is just them being a business trying to improve things. One thing that's long been a concern for digital nomads is that it's not easy to see how good the internet is in Airbnb's. Mm. um you know airbnbs typically don't show the internet speed uh, and for a long time you had to go through this ritual of messaging a host asking what's the internet speed i don't know go on the UCLA speed test you know enter it's very easy to do oh i'm not great with the internet and um, you'll just have to wait and see you know it was a really laborious uh time-consuming irritating process um uh, that airbnb has fixed fairly quickly in recent weeks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just because they know they make a lot of money off digital nomads, they make a lot of money off people from, you know, people working in San Francisco who take a few months to move to Lisbon and Portugal and will pay five five times the market price for, you know, for an Airbnb uh, because it's still very cheap to them. And I think Airbnb realizes that this is a demographic they can't ignore. And so they're doing something in that side of the business. Cleaning fees, I don't think bother them so much.
0: So as a digital nomad, and that whole the whole digital nomad thing really fascinates me, um, that, that's a different show. But um, do you stay in VRBOs or Airbnbs, or do you go on to the local economy to try to find a place?
1: So in the past, I used Airbnbs a lot more. Um, and the reason for that is that there's a huge gap in the market where it's actually very difficult to get these short to midterm lets, you know, as someone not from the country. And I call this the 89-day problem. You know, probably the most common cutoff period in most countries in the world as a tourist is 80, 90 days. You know, after 90 days, uh, you have to leave the country and come back in another six months or something like that. There are exceptions. You know, Mexico, six months. But if you want to go to Colombia, Brazil, Canada, so on, you know, most of the the major tourist destinations that the average European or American is likely to go to, uh, you get 90 days. And that's a big problem because you know, the the local, you know, standard rental economy is not looking for people who are staying for three months or two months. You know, if you're going to rent out an actual apartment to someone, you want them staying six months or longer, typically, and you don't want the hassle of going through this, you know, recurrent pattern of people there for two months or so. In a lot of countries, it's not even legal to to offer that sort of rent to a digital nomad, you know, to someone who isn't a citizen of the country. And so you're in this awkward position where it's not feasible to stay in a hotel for two months or three months at a time, you know, for a lot of reasons. You know, you you talk about Airbnbs not having services and that's true in a sense and it's not true in another sense. So there are things uh, in an Airbnb like, let's say, laundry facilities Mm -hmm. that you might not have in a lot of hotels or you might do, but with a very high markup. If you're planning to stay there for three months, having your own kitchen is a big, big deal. It's a really big deal. And these are things that hotels can't or don't offer so for for these midterm stays uh hotels just aren't really a viable competitor to what airbnb can do and it's often not possible to get into the local tourist economy that's part of why i mostly uh, move around in europe these days because as a european citizen all those legal barriers uh, disappear you know it's much much easier as a european to stay in france or spain or italy or greece and, um, you know, if you go to Mexico, uh, it suddenly becomes a lot more complicated. You have to deal with a lot of bureaucracy. There might be, you know, informal payments to local officials and that sort of thing uh, in touristy areas. You know, there, there are just a lot of complications that you have to deal with. And Airbnb really cuts a lot of these out.
0: I think I think you're right. I think when, I, when I'm talking about services, I guess it's all in the – it depends upon the um, segment – the consumer segment that belong to, because when I'm going someplace, right, I'm going usually um, either business where I'm in and out um, or vacation. Right. And I don't think I'm looking mm-hmm. for a kitchen cause I want to go out and eat and I want to go out and do this. And, sure, but sure. if you're, a, if you're a digital nomad like yourself, right, that is, that is really important. And so those are things that you want to mm-hmm. do cause that's money. Um, hey, on digital mm-hmm. nomad. So is being a digital nomad, is it like a nightclub? So is it like at a certain point you ate, you don't want to be the oldest dude in the nightclub. Like, is, do you see like a 60 year old digital nomad? And you're like, dude, get a life.
1: Yeah, you do see those. I think um, probably there's, I don't think there's much of a stigma around it, but I think it depends a lot on your economic situation. You know, no, if you see a 57 year old who's, if you see a 57 year old who's still staying in hostels, of course <laughs> there's going to be stigma around that. You know, whereas so. if someone's, you know, where but you do see this, you really do. You do a 57
0: year old uh, dude in a
1: hostel yeah very frequently uh very frequently uh okay. so frequently that actually a lot of popular hostels have uh, age limits you know yeah. 40s and under and that sort of thing uh, and you know, there can be all sorts of reasons for this you know you have mm-hmm. someone who you know really hated their corporate office job they quit with no plan uh you know they mm-hmm. moved well, i'll give you one common example which is that during the coronavirus lockdowns um a lot of Americans moved to Mexico because most of Mexican states didn't have strict restrictions. So, you know, you have people that were leaving their jobs in the US that didn't necessarily have a lot of savings. They were just, you know, tired of you know being locked indoors and they were willing to do anything to to get out of that situation. And so they made an impulse decision to move to Mexico with no savings, no job. And so So you don't necessarily have the option of paying, you know, a thousand dollars a month for their BNB. A lot of these people were staying in hostels, you know? So it is a thing that you see. And so, yeah, there's, there's a different expectation depending on your stage of life. You know, if someone's uh, 50 years old traveling the world, uh, but you know, they are, let's say, uh, an independent consultant, you know, who's living in, very glamorous, yeah. You know, apartments.
0: I get that. Uh, it's quite an oh. idyllic
1: life. Yes, yeah. I get that.
0: The Hostel Guy is a little
1: different story, though. Very different story. Very different <laughs> yes. story. So in that sense of it, yeah, it's uh, absolutely. Um, it's a lot like high school more yeah. than a nightclub, I'd say. Oh, there, <laughs> really? there are and there are social outcasts. In, in in the, and the digital nomad film, world? Uh, <laughs> very much so. Oh, wow. It's a really toxic world.
0: Really? Is there like Horribly a great, toxic. is there like the digital yeah. nomad grapevine it's like, hey, watch out! Mark's going to yeah, be coming there's... to you know Morocco. Stay away. Yeah, um, <laughs> I think there, there are kind of things like this
1: on local Facebook pages and that sort of thing. Yeah, a lot of scammers. You know, um, you know, probably when you think of digital nomads, you think of uh, maybe you know people doing digital advertising yeah, or right. computer programmers. Uh-huh. Um, but then you know, if you go to Bali, you'll find a lot of digital nomads who are selling pyramid schemes and selling pyramid schemes and how to sell pyramid schemes so um pyramid you know, scheme there, coaches there <laughs> yeah. crypto, crypto traders pyramid scheme coaches <laughs> crypto trader coaches you know you yeah. have a lot of uh, you have a lot of diverse interests and a lot of people are doing things that aren't necessarily very respectable
0: you know you know caitlin there's a fine line between a between being a digital nomad and pre- and being on the lamb from law enforcement <laughs> it's a very yeah, fine very, line. Not so.
1: <laughs> very much um, so. And I think it's uh, it's not a coincidence that a lot of digital nomads uh, from a country like the U.S. tend to find themselves in a place like Mexico or yeah. Vietnam where it's relatively easy to bribe a cop, you know, if you're caught with drugs yes. or something
0: right, like that. Right, right. Okay, but so before we go back to Airbnb because I'm always so fascinated by the digital nomad life, I have one last question. So what, what was the worst uh, country that you've had to – Hole up in that maybe you even left early because you're like, hey, you know what? Thanks, guys. I'm out. This just ain't working for me. Hmm. It's a good question. In Colombia,
1: I, I quite liked Colombia. Um, you know, uh, I have Colombian friends. I love the country and I would go back to it. But the most horrific experience of how traveling was there. And okay. I was mugged in a city called Cartagena. I was beaten unconscious by a group of five or six young guys. I had my phone taken, my card taken. I was left on a street corner. Uh, overnight with broken bones uh, there was a police car on the street uh, it saw what was happening and turned on sirens but didn't intervene um, and after that I yeah uh, didn't feel very safe or secure uh, and I stayed in Latin America for about another month and decided I need to be back somewhere where I can feel safe to, to walk around in the like, evening by maybe. myself and I came back to Europe
0: Good. Yeah. Like Eastern, I hear Eastern Europe is great. I I have a friend who is, uh, who goes to Columbia a lot. um, And he's always telling me how great it is. And I'm going to use a different name. And I'm like, yeah, you know, Bob, it is great, except for that one moment that it's not. And that's the moment you need to be ready for. I, uh, you know,
1: I'm not sure how the security situation in a big U.S. city compares to a European one, except to know that the U.S. is generally a little more dangerous. You know, there there are worse areas and there's a little more petty crime. But very often you'll see on like a digital nomad script for somewhere like Medellin or somewhere like Rio de Janeiro, uh, you know, you'll have a, a lot of like, you know, a lot of Californians saying, you know, don't believe what the media tells you about the danger in Latin America. Like I feel safer in Rio than I do in Sacramento. And <laughs> look, I haven't been to Sacramento, but I can look at crime statistics and <laughs> I can tell you that Rio right. is about ten times more dangerous, you
0: know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't think our favela is in operation right now. So I think <laughs> big no, difference. No. So. Yeah. I, I think, I think a lot of people, um, yeah. you know, uh,
1: they, they move somewhere for three months, they don't get mugged. The media has told them that they will get mugged, and they think, oh, fantastic, you yeah. know, this place is a lot safer than I was told. You know, the majority of people living in Afghanistan during the war weren't killed. Right. You know, even the most dangerous places in the world, probably nothing extremely bad is going to happen to you on a day-to-day basis, probably. Like you said, it's about that one time when things don't go well. Correct. And. You know, those those situations are incredibly rare in somewhere like Spain, which is where I ended up moving after. Um, uh, You know, yeah, maybe someone's going to snatch your phone in Barcelona. But the idea of someone, you know, like beating you unconscious in front, you know, in front of the police, that just doesn't happen. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, I I really feel by the way, your California accent was great. Your California your california dude who oh don't listen to what the, the, those other people say everything's rosy you had that you had that unlocked so well done i don't A know who you're hanging with <laughs> so i so i'm back to airbnb so you know i feel that this whole airbnb bust is you know all in the eye of the beholder because it might be true for some people but those are people who might not have should have been getting into it in the first place or they got into it with the wrong expectations and and they took the wrong route um so you, again you have people like myself who are looking at as a long term deal it's a it's gonna be an asset that's gonna over over years right I'm gonna hold on to right property uh, um, and also you know I'm getting value out of it by using it right not having to stay at places I have my own place I can stay I can stay when I go. Um, but again, so the Airbnb bust, I think again, is in the eye of the beholder because for some people it could be right. And so I think you touched on that a little mm-hmm. bit in your story and I think it all comes down to one word saturation. So you want to talk about the saturation of the market because it's incredible. And I can give you one statistic here. And that is that of the 1.2 million listings in the U S for the Airbnb listings, 62% have come on the market since 2020. Um, now, you know, demand remains rather stagnant, and or it might grow a little bit, right? And uh, as demand always does, up, down, up, down. But it t- it tends to stay along the same plane um, as long as the population does, or there's some you know something knocks it out. But you can't increase the market by 62%, right? And not expect some people to go, oh my God, (laughs) the sky is falling. So you want to talk about that a bit? Sure.
1: Um, And I I will say as well that not only should we not expect the market to grow by 62%, but it's really hard to imagine a scenario in which the market grows significantly at all. I mean, when you think about the... In the circumstances right now, you know, this idea of revenge tourism, you know, this explosion of tourist spending right after COVID, uh, it's really it's really hard to see tourism getting much bigger than it, than it is now, I think. Uh, but yeah, my guess would be that uh, properties with very good reviews, you know, places with five stars and hundreds of reviews that super host places will continue to do very well because they have a they have a brand, they have a reputation, people know they're going to have a good Experience and those places uh will continue to do very, very well. If you own your property outright and you have no reliance on Airbnb uh to provide an income for you, then you can weather the storm. You know, maybe you don't get a lot of bookings, so that's fine. You can wait until the situation is a little better. And like in all markets, you're gonna have consolidation and bad periods, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the people who should really be concerned are the people who are taking on leverage. The people who saw YouTube guru telling them to, to take out a thirty-year mortgage because Airbnb was going to last forever—that is insanity. I, I don't know how anyone could could convince themselves that they can rely upon Airbnb to be a steady source of income for the next thirty years. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, it's breathtaking to me that people do that, but they do. They do, uh, and you would expect that a lot of these people will fall upon difficult financial times, and that that will clear out a lot of the a lot of the listings on the market. And you know, this is um, this is a good thing generally. I think um, I think it's good that you know the the people that can't compete are sort of forced to leave the market and the better ones remain and that that will happen you know the hosts that have bad reviews the ones that don't provide a good experience for users they'll be hard hit by this oversaturated market and the ones who you know uh remain competitive in in a crowded field will survive and live to see better days Mm
0: -hmm. yeah I, i think some of the folks on youtube so when i was doing research on you you know and i went under you know looking on there and Man, if you do it on YouTube, if you do the Airbnb bust, all you find are these doom and gloom YouTubers who are, you know, Airbnb is going to go out in, you know, in 30 days. Here's what you need to do now. It's a constant parade of these, you know, these episodes. And I think Shelby Church is a – you probably researched her for your story. Mm-hmm. You know, she is a um, – has a lot of followers on YouTube and, you know, she took a bath on her home in uh, down in Palm Springs was well, she built at the height and if you look at the furniture she used right it was all high end furniture she it was just it was what not to do if you're trying to create an investment that's going to return money not one that'll look good on your youtube episodes right so people like her i feel are kind of feeding into this and along with these other youtube gurus who now want to help save you right now here's what you need to do so i think you're right Uh, Caitlin, a lot of this is being driven by folks that probably got these people into these bad situations, um, in the first place. Yeah. And, uh,
1: I would say too, Palm Springs is going to be an area that's going to, it's going to be competitive. You're going to have a lot of Airbnbs there. Uh, you know, you might have a much better chance of weathering a storm if you're in in a small, not particularly well-known, I don't know, Californian seaside town, you know, Uh, Somewhere that doesn't have a lot of competition, because, again, people want Airbnbs over hotels in some situations. You know, if you're the only player in the market that can guarantee people a living, you know, a kitchen and a washing machine, you're always going to have some people. Uh, But people have other choices in Palm Springs.
0: Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's so many resorts there. Um, I've never stayed in an Airbnb when I've gone to Palm Springs. So we've talked about the experience. The experience has changed or mm, let's say it's evolved, right? The experience for an Airbnb person has evolved, um, from when it first started. Um, the, uh, Airbnb bust, which is the basis of your story and medium, um, I think a lot of that, and I think you probably agree. It's on the eye of the. It's on your perspective, right? So, if you own one of these large investment um, companies that has, you know, 500 properties, it's probably not a bad deal for you, um, because you know what? You can waive the cleaning fees at all of your places, right? Because you have enough income coming in or not enough revenue, where you can waive, you can make yourself more attractive. Um, but now let's talk about. So we've talked about the perspective of the Airbnb bust um, again for the owners of the properties. It depends on your perspective. But now let's talk about Airbnb itself, the company. So believe me, there is no bust happening there. They've turned in record revenues, record profits, I have to give them a big thumbs up because they've kept their employees at 5% of cost. So they really do a good job, unlike some of these other, you know, tech companies who get these real fat, you know, I don't think I've ever seen a YouTube of my day at Airbnb, like, you know, like they have the my day (laughs) at Facebook. Um, Because it sounds like they keep a real slim, you know, a real skinny employment uh, portfolio there, which I, I appreciate so Airbnb seems to be incredibly healthy. Do you wanna you wanna talk a little bit about why they've managed to continue to grow the company?
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And this is really the, the crux of my thinking in the article. I think Airbnb is a good company. It's it's very lean. It's very lean. Uh, they understand the core business model. They're not trying to branch out into a significant number of other ideas. They have no plan for a metaverse. They understand that they are middlemen for people that want to lease out houses on a short to medium term basis. They haven't expanded too much. And we forget Airbnb has survived other crises before. You know, Airbnb was still around during the the last financial crisis and they got through that just fine. Uh, I think Airbnb as a company doesn't really have a lot of risk. You know, in a very, very worst case scenario, if there's a huge global economic meltdown in the next year or two and tourism grounds almost to a halt, they will struggle. They will struggle, but I think that there's no real existential risk because uh, the fundamentals of the company aren't in question. There will be capital waiting to help them. You know, if they go through a bad period, you know, even if the the accounts are running a little thin, I think the investment community will look at Airbnb and see a company that isn't fundamentally flawed. You know, it's the market leader in its category. It's big business. It's lean. It's not very exposed. It doesn't own a lot of physical assets. Uh, what could go wrong? You know, we, when you look at other companies, there's a lot that could go wrong. You know, we look at big tech companies like Facebook, Google, that are trimming thousands of employees because during COVID they got over ambitious uh, and they were reacting to a world where you know people were spending so much more time in these services. They hired quickly and now they have to downsize very quickly too. I think Airbnb was never that ambitious, and it didn't. It's it's not the same business model as something like Google or Facebook. It doesn't have its fingers in a lot of different pies, you know. It's not operating three or four different businesses under a single corporate umbrella. Airbnb, to the to the very best of my knowledge, does housing.
0: That's it, and they take a piece, right? That's it. That's they it. Take a piece. They're a middleman,
1: you know. Uh, they they
0: they charge a fee. You know, uh,
1: use the platform and they're not exposed there's no risk even if tourism collapses there's no reason why Airbnb would collapse because inevitably tourism will come back and then Airbnb will
0: yeah you know in in the last quarter of 2022 they had 90 million um uh, guest arrivals globally so um if you think about that all they want to do is just take a little piece of whatever right mm-hmm. They're not trying to then move you to their, you know, their metaverse, or they're not trying to now deliver food to you through their cars, right? Yeah. Like, no, no. Just we want that little piece of the 90 million that came in that quarter. That's it. It's beautifully elegant. I, I think
1: the only real risk there, Airbnb has to contend
0: with is possibly a
1: regulatory one in some countries. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, left to its own devices, the business model is depressingly sound, I think. And I think in in a lot of countries and especially in economies that are very dependent upon tourism, uh, that has distortionary effects in the local housing situation. You know, if you go to Lisbon or you go to Barcelona uh, and I'm sure if you go to Miami in the US, you know, you come across cities where it's increasingly becoming really, really difficult for locals to find a place to rent uh, because Airbnb just makes a lot more sense, you know. Uh, Why would you rent somewhere out for $1,000 a month when you can charge $400 a night to someone coming in for a special occasion, have less wear and tear in the property, have more control over it, spend time in it yourself if you want to when there are no guests? You know, uh, Airbnb is really inefficient. You know, the, the properties are left empty for most of the time. Yeah, which isn't true of a hotel. And it's definitely not true of an apartment that's being rented out on the local tourist economy. I think there are a lot of people in the world that are really unhappy with that. uh, And I think you could see at some point that manifesting in a political reaction. And we do see that in a lot of European cities, there have been attempts to clamp down on Airbnbs by requiring people to have hotel licenses and things like that to operate them. But I think generally these attempts haven't been especially successful. Um, So I think in a world where... That political reaction became better organized, more effective. Maybe that could have an impact on Airbnb's success. But I personally think that's unlikely to be the case. Uh, assuming there's no organized uh, political response, I think Airbnb is, is pretty safe as a company.
0: Yeah, you know, even in uh, areas out here in California where they try to limit the number of properties that can operate as an Airbnb or a, a short-term rental, I, because of the fungibility of economics, I feel that, okay, if you limit it to 10, that means that the amount that I, if I have one of those 10 licenses, right, the amount that I can charge now can go up because now there's a limited supply mm-hmm. and Airbnb just gets a bigger cut, right, of what would have been. So mm-hmm. even then, I think, you know, they're they're going to be okay, but you're right in those other situations like the ones that you're talking about where you have to get a hotel, hotel license, That's that's a little seems a little more existential, you know, of a threat to them. Yeah,
1: um, I think uh, there are different responses that are, you know, have really different levels of severity and intelligence behind them. You know, one thing I think is quite interesting about, say, Switzerland in Switzerland, uh, there's no particularly strong prohibition on Airbnbs, but. If you stay at a registered tourist property, like a hostel or a hotel uh, in a city like Geneva, you get a free public transport pass and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, other advantages that you don't get when you're staying at an unregistered Airbnb. Um, I think that's quite a clever way to redirect some of the tourism market away from unregistered Airbnbs and more towards formal tourist establishments um that's quite a light-handed regulation uh but one that seems to be relatively effective i think airbnbs actually are quite cheap in switzerland so compared to say hotel prices um in some places airbnbs are just illegal and that's quite strictly enforced i'm not sure if it's still the case singapore used to have really really strict regulations on airbnbs it was very very difficult to rent out um uh you know but definitely uh, housing board properties in Singapore couldn't be rented out to to foreigners Mm -hmm. under almost any circumstance. Um, And I think that was pretty rigidly enforced. There was a big crackdown against Airbnbs in Tokyo uh, a year or two ago. Um, So, you know, if the government is stable enough and capable enough, you can do something about this. I think part of the problem is that a lot of the places where Airbnbs are pretty prevalent are places Mm -hmm. like Greece and Spain, where the local authorities just aren't necessarily very good at what they're supposed to be doing. Not,
0: not as bad as Colombia, but probably not all that great. <laughs> not as bad as Colombia. And I think one point too is you know uh, Spain and Italy
1: make a bigger share of their money from tourism than Colombia does, and so you you know Europe doesn't necessarily have big pharma or big gun, but we do have big hotel. You know we we have a big tourism industry. <laughs> you know Europe has lobbying as well, uh, but you know European lobbying it operates in a different front. Yeah, so there's a small wine uh, by the name of Prosecco and Prosecco is made I think in Slovenia or Croatia but somewhere in the the western Balkans Mm -hmm. Um, and they're facing a legal case by Prosecco which is a multi-billion dollar wine consortium very intent on protecting the regional trademark. Now Prosecco is actually older than Prosecco much older hundreds of years older but uh, it's unlikely to win the court case just because it only sells a few hundred bottles per year.
0: Oh my god that's horrible even though they were first. <laughs> yes, That's, by hundreds of years. You just so can't, um, you can't beat big Prosecco. You can't beat big Prosecco. So
1: um, <laughs> Europe has its lobbying too, and like anywhere in the world, there will be corporate incentives and initiatives, and there will be corruption, and there will be inefficiency. And I, one of these things about Airbnb licenses is that cities come to depend on them for revenue. You know, if you are uh, a small city in Spain uh, that's very popular with tourists and you're running into financial difficulties and you need to raise money quickly, one of the best ways to do it is by handing out a lot of Airbnb licenses. You know, in the same way that whenever a city has really bad congestion problems, you know, one way that a lot of cities deal with it is by introducing a charge. Very rarely does it actually end the congestion, it raises a lot of money for the city. But then the city has an incentive to make sure that there's a lot of cars coming through, so they can continue making <laughs> right. money. That's right. So, so you have misaligned you've misaligned incentives here. You know, as long as these tourism dependent cities and towns in, in places like southern Europe or I guess to Florida, you know, the Caribbean, as long as these places have an incentive to encourage a lot of tourism and encourage a lot of Airbnb tourism, um, they can introduce these little measures. But they're not going to do anything substantial.
0: Kaylin, I, I, I again, your your story in, in the December, you know, version of, or issue of media. I don't know. Do you call them issues when they're online? Like, what do you call that? You're, you're, uh, no, not really. Uh, um, I don't know what I'd call it. Uh, it's an article that I, that I published in All right. December. All right. Your article published on December uh, 18th and, and, or 13th. Last year in in Medium, why Airbnb bust is wishful thinking was great, and I think I think having you on was something I really wanted to do because I, again, uh, that constant yammering on on YouTube, right, and on and on Reddit, etc., talking about Airbnb bust, I really wanted to talk to you and put that thing to bed, and I, I think we have, and again, there it is true. But it's based upon your perspective, right? If you're someone who took out a huge loan to get a house because a YouTuber told you you're going to make bank, well, it probably is an Airbnb bust for you. Um, But in general, Airbnb is doing just fine. Thank you.
1: Just fine. I, I think if you're not heav- heavily leveraged, there's almost nothing to worry about, really, you know, uh, as is nearly always the case in property. If you can afford to wait out a bad year or two, there's no significant danger. Um, like with anything, you know, if <laughs> you put 5% down and you're expecting to make $20,000 a month, well, good luck. Um <laughs> But uh, I think most people should be quite safe. I think the company, Airbnb, is actually in a much safer position than most other big household name tech companies. Um, And I think the, the thing about Reddit and YouTube, it's a bit like the... I think Ferrari uh, used to have this thing where they never advertised on TV, and the reasoning behind that was they figured the sort of people with the the money to buy Ferraris didn't spend a lot of their time watching TV. I think if you're, you know, a pretty successful Airbnb host, probably you don't spend a lot of your time engaging in on the Reddit boards. Reddit. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs>
0: that's that's my intuition. I don't know how, how accurate it is, but that's my intuition. You know, you know what's weird is. Why hasn't Prosecco really crossed over to the U.S.? There's a lot of really fascinating stories behind this. I actually used to work in the wine industry.
1: Um, like, uh, bef- you know, um, before I started doing online work, I did a lot of seasonal work in ski resorts and in vineyards. And um, there, there are a lot of interesting things about wine. Like one example is that um, in the aftermath of World War One, I, I think, uh, there was a trade deal struck between Europe and the U.S., on what we call um protected designations of origin pdo so this idea that say um you know, uh, champagne has to come from the Champagne region in France, Champagne, which is one of the most famous ones. It's not actually strictly true because the U.S. refused to agree to that because there were already certain wines in the U.S. that were going by the name of Champagne, mostly made in California, and they were grandfathered in. And so today you have California Champagne. You have a few, you know, wine producers in California that are still allowed to call their product champagne as long as they're not selling it in Europe. But they're allowed to sell it in the US under the brand name Champagne um, just because that's the deal that was struck. It's a a very political industry and uh, (laughs) there's not always a lot of logic to it.
0: Well, there must have been something with Prosecco because I watch a lot of British programming and they're always talking about Prosecco. You know, they're like, ooh, a little Prosecco. And I'm like, what the hell is that? I don't even know what it is. I don't even see it on store shelves here. So... hmm. Yeah, so the...
1: Basically, Prosecco is a fairly mediocre quality sparkling wine. Okay. Um, but it is a sparkling wine, uh, which has an area, of, an aura of prestige around it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it doesn't have the same aging requirements as, say, Cava does or, um, you know, Champagne and other French sparkling wines. And uh, I think in Britain, it became a really big deal uh, because of a meal deal in a supermarket called Marks and Spencer's. Yeah. Where they right. famously sold... Uh, two like uh, ready meals and a bottle of Prosecco for eight pounds, which was a very, very good price for a bottle there you of wine go. And some food. Uh, that's your explanation. Right that's there. That's probably the closest I can get to it. That it became a big thing for the British yeah. middle class uh, because it was cheap wine in a Polish supermarket.
0: Say no more. Meal deal. That's it. Right. There you you say that, I get the math right away. Well done. If Trader Joe's
1: started <laughs> selling a, a cheap. Uh, you know yeah. a bottle of mexican tequila you know with um, with something they sold and it really took off in the u.s that
0: that would be the equivalent i guess Per uh, prosecco so caitlin savage man you've been a great guest i really really appreciate having you on um airbnb if uh if that were if you had a, uh, you had money to put down on a stock right now would you would you buy or would you sell Buy buy yeah Uh, me too there's a a chance of it wait a year i'm not (laughs) sure
1: right now was the best time in history to buy but uh i think um you know in the the medium term yeah absolutely it's a it's a solid
0: it's a solid venture All right. Thank you. Thank you so much again. Really appreciate it. Good luck out there in Italy. And um, again, you're awesome. And I'm going to look through your stories and I'd love to probably have you on again, because again, your writing is, I I don't know why, but the stuff you write about is really stuff that really uh, um, appeals to me. So well done. Uh, We kind of think alike. Thanks, Callan. Great to hear. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot, and we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you.